I don't think anybody knows the answer to the question, how does the situation in Ukraine get resolved? We don't know. Um, there were more talks today uh, between the foreign ministers of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, it took place in Turkey today. Um, Sergei Lavrov of Russia, there with two advisors, sitting across from his Ukrainian counterpart, Dmitro Kuleba and his officials. And after the meeting, Kuleba said, you know what? We didn't get anywhere on this. I hope, I sincerely hope, my impression is that Russia is uh, uh, not in a position at this point to establish a ceasefire. They seek uh, a surrender from Ukraine, but this is not what they are going to get. Um, so no progress made. Uh, we'll see if there will be more talks. It doesn't seem like there's even a, a starting point for these talks. I think this is the third time they've sat down and had these talks and there's been no progress made whatsoever. Meanwhile, um, there's all kinds of talk about, as you've heard, military support. And then there's the issue with the planes between Poland and the United States. Uh, the West has made it very, very clear that military intervention is off the table. That's not something that they're entertaining. A lot of people angry about that. A lot of other people taking a big sigh of relief that they're not interested in doing that. Uh, in the meantime, the economic penalties continue, and they're piling up. Russia really has become a pariah state, and Putin a pariah himself, and the damage being done to the economy. The ruble uh, has collapsed. Um, markets still closed, apparently very close to defaulting on their debt. Uh, and in terms of international business in Russia, they're fleeing uh, one after the other. Big name brands, I mean, you name it, McDonald's, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Apple, KFC, Volkswagen, they're all gone. They're not doing business with Russia anymore. So the economic pressure mounts up. Will that possibly reach a point where it causes some movement on the Russian side. I don't know. Let's get some insight. We're going to chat right now with Dr. Anita Ramasastri, who's a law professor and director of the Sustainable International Development Graduate Program at the University of Washington School of Law and is also on the United Nations Working Group on Business and Human Rights. Um, Dr. Ramasastri, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Great. Good morning from Seattle. Um, the situation that we find ourselves in here, the pressure on um, Russia really just continues to mount. Has there ever been economic pressure like this before uh, that you can think of where this kind of international, you know, the sanctions and the businesses pulling out and all the rest, all of this economic pressure has been leveled? No, this kind of toolkit, magnitude, sort of speed, scale, targeted sanctions, sectoral sanctions, government sanctions, it's a real toolkit um, that we haven't seen deployed before against an economy so big. The question is, will it be effective? Has it had any influence? I mean, we, the, the threat of the sanctions was there before all this started. How effective do you think this could be? It, it could be, and I think the, the question is how fast and how long will it take Typically, when we think of sanctions against other economies that are of a smaller size, it still takes quite some time for the impact to be felt and for that to actually have any change in the political negotiations that might be going on with that particular government. So in this case, right, the, the magnitude is what we, the EU and the U.S. are hoping will make this different. 
But I think, again, if we look at history, it's usually a trajectory where it's going to take time uh, for that leverage to actually pay off. So in the meanwhile, right, we, we, we just keep seeing the scale. And the question is, what is left? Um, you know, the U.S. has moved on oil and gas, prohibiting the imports. We didn't think we were going to get there, but the U.S. has. Uh, we have yet to see that happen in Europe. But, right, that's sort of the, that yeah. next level. That's the big one. Everybody says that. I mean, that's the huge one. That might be the lever that does it. But when you talk it about is, leverage... Well, Swift was the big one uh, before, too, right? So the yeah. question is, do we have more big ones? Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. When you talk about leverage and, you know, the increasing the leverage, what do you think the leverage comes from? Is it the fact that the country's economy appears to be faltering and on the verge of collapse? Is it the currency? Is it the fact that the oligarchs are being targeted? Or could it be the fact that Russian citizens are going to start paying a huge price and maybe they put pressure on the government? Right. It's, it's all of those, right? I think that each of those different pressure points, right, there's, as we mentioned, the targeted sanctions. So what leverage do the oligarchs have and the concern? The challenge with those sanctions are that, that so many of these governments have spent so long welcoming in offshore money that the, the way to find it and actually deal with it, it it's maybe too little too late. So we, we move beyond that and, of course, cutting off financial institutions. We hope that, again, in, in the country, those banks are going to say, look, we can't we can't continue uh, unless you unless you do something about it. And then finally, of course, that longer trajectory, which is what role for the Russian people. But I think that's where if we, if we think about the way in which po- uh, popular dissent or any kind of expression um, of, of, of change happens, it, it takes much more time. Um, so those other pressure points of, of companies, of banks, of large leading, you know, economic actors like oligarchs, really that's where if you were going to see swifter action, it would have to be those parties having leverage. These companies, uh, you know, these massive, huge international companies, what kind of a calculation is it for them to bail on Russia? I mean, there are hundreds of franchises in some cases that they're, they're shutting down. I mean, is it an easy decision for them or are they feeling pressure too? Yeah, well, I think they're feeling pressure. Now, some people will say it might be public pressure from consumers. I don't think that's that. What we don't know is whether the pressure is just coming from the fact that it's just becoming too risky and too costly to do business or whether this truly is a moral stance. Now, some companies acted early because they understood strategically, if you think about oil and gas, that there was a clear tie to government relationship in a way that, that there was a need to sever ties and step aside. We've seen that in other markets and conflicts like in Myanmar, too, right? The extractive yeah. or oil and gas sector move. But it's different when we see, as you said, like the McDonald's and the Starbucks of the world. Um, they're just providing you know, food to, to ordinary people. Um, so why are they severing ties. They're not required to legally, uh, but they're doing so. And so it may be because, again, that they believe that this is somehow uh, ethically different from many other scenarios in the world, or that it really is about the fact that they themselves, it's just too expensive to do do business. You know, the cost of insurance, you can't transport your goods into the market, whatever it is. And over time, we'll figure out, you know, what, why um, these companies are cutting ties. But I'll just say it, the companies cutting ties are not doing so under sanctions, right? So that's yeah. yet another, as you mentioned, pressure point. Um, the question is, how long will that last? And we don't know. And, and some other situations of, of late, I mean, not, not uh, analogous, but there were situations in Saudi Arabia, for example, where uh, companies and, and investors said, you know, we're not going to stay in. Um, that, was a short, that was short-lived, um, and, and they came back. Uh, so, so just an open question, how long? 
Am I just a big softie or am I thinking, you know, if I'm McDonald's or I'm Starbucks or I'm Volkswagen or I'm whoever, not being there doesn't hurt Putin necessarily. I guess it could down the road, but you're hurting the Russian people who, as far as I mean, who perhaps haven't done a damn thing. You know what I mean? Is there some merit in saying, you know what, we don't need to punish the Russian people. They're not the ones waging war in Ukraine. Yes, there are. So there's, there's, yeah, that's right. So there's sort of two pieces to that. One is, yes, so like the UN uh, work that I do on business and human rights would say, you know, if you're going to exit, you do need to think about the harm or the consequences sure. to the, not only just the consumers you're leaving behind, but, you know, in many circumstances, the, employees? the workers, yeah. right? So you, you need to think about that, and you have to have a mitigation strategy around that, and, and I'm hoping that those companies do. Um, and then there's just that larger question of can they, um, you know, uh, Starbucks initially said, you know, we're going to stay in, but we're just going to, you know, our profits will be generated and given to Ukrainian relief. And Uniqlo, uh, the clothing company, said uh, until recently, I don't know if they've changed their mind, that they're staying because, again, yes, Russian people should have clothing, right? And, you know, pharmaceutical companies are going to have, again, a different remit because, you know, the right to medicines and health is important around the world. Um, so we're going to have to think about sort of the issue of impact on people. And that's always a question about sort of when you think about sanctions or in this case, you know, companies just cutting ties. And McDonald's, I think, I think they said they're out, but they're going to continue to pay their employees. In fact, most of the McDonald's franchises are, are, are owned by McDonald's. They're not owned independently, but what a mess. Where do you think this goes? Does this pressure just continue to, to ramp up? Or is there a point, you know, when we're talking about, is there a tipping point where Russia says, okay, okay, enough? Um, or is there a point where, you know, the rest of the world says, okay, this isn't working anymore. We need to try something else. I mean, or does this just continue? Well, that's just it. I mean, I think that that's the open question. If if a short-term solution is not possible, as we've seen in many other parts of the world, um, there is this period of stasis, right, where we, we exist and where the sanctions are in place, uh, the companies have left, and then there's just a question of how long. And that's where, you know, a lot of questions, you know, are asked of, of uh, scholars is is this going to happen? Is this going to end quickly? And our answers are usually no, right? That historically, uh, these issues are prolonged, they're protracted, and that the impact of economic action um, doesn't have an immediate effect in terms of the political consequence. Yeah, what a situation. What a mess. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for your time. No, my pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. That is Dr. Anita Ramasastri, who's a law professor and director at the Sustainable International Development Graduate Program at the University of Washington School of Law in Seattle, Washington.